Yeah. All right. Our podcast is presented by Tech GC, our friends at Tech GC, uh, giving us fancy mics and helping us produce it. Uh, for more information on uh, Tech GC, look down below in the notes. And Pedro and I are part of their privacy forum this week, which is going to be totally awesome. And uh, they have plenty of events like that. Um, privacy focused, GC focused, all sorts of different topics. Uh, and all their events are fire. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, if you want to hear more from us, uh, TechGC is a good place to be a member of. All right. You're reporting live from Portugal, which is not something we've never I done am reporting. before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm reporting live from Portugal. I'm in my Airbnb on a laptop. Uh, yeah, I took a, my friend's getting married in a couple of days and I decided to take some, married in Spain in a couple of days and I decided to take some time and hang out in Portugal and work from here. It's been amazing. Oh, that's what a I'm in Porto. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. And Portugal's got like a lot of food and good times, man. I feel like nobody wakes up before noon around here, but other than that, it's pretty solid. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty solid, perfect. man. It's pretty solid. All well, right. Well, we've got some great guests today. Well, we got some yep. great guests today, and we're going to talk about love languages and emojis and all kinds of unexpected treats. One thing we didn't get to—I didn't get to mention because we ran out of time—but I'm going to flag now, Andy—is um, uh, the, the the whole the hugging koalas in the back of Megan's. Uh, oh yeah, on her chimney on the mantle, the hugging koalas, dude. Like I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't take my I eyes love, off these I, I wanted to say that, too. It, it was really cool. It's like a drawing or something. Hugging, it's like a pencil drawing of just some hugging koalas, and I wish I would have asked what the heck that's about because I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And then we started getting into love languages, and I yeah. couldn't take – I was obsessed with these koalas. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, Let's get our friends I, I, on I, here before my internet I, collapses. <laughs> All right. Here it is. Enjoy Portugal. I want to talk about hiring because we have Alexis here who you who you hired. And so I want to and then Alexis has Best Alexis hire has hired people as well. <laughs> so I want to I want to talk about that. So you went to Gusto and at both places you've had done a lot of hiring. So like how did that happen for you? And then how did you start building the team? Yeah. Also, pure luck, right? I don't want to pretend that I had some sort of oracle over which companies were doing going to do really well and sort of followed the market trends and the VC reports. Um, I've always tried to to orient myself towards people I could want to be around and want to work with. And so um, when I finally did decide to leave Cooley, it was really a tough decision. Love that place. Um, I moved to Gusto, where I thought I was going to go be a corporate lawyer. And pretty soon after, they put me in charge of the legal team, which at the time was two or three. And when I left two years later, it was over 45 legal and compliance professionals in the course of a super hyper growth period. COVID hit. We were working for small businesses, doing payroll. Payroll protection program was all over the news. And so um, it was one of the highlights of my career to get lucky enough to be there during a time of great crisis. I'm a big believer that crisis breeds so much opportunity. doesn't mean it's comfortable or easy, but it definitely breeds opportunity. Um, and so from Gusto, uh, a little bit of a similar story. Five Trend picked me up um, and... I started at Fivetran as the first legal hire in general counsel. And we now have a team of, I think, is it 22, Alexis? 20, 20 something. Yeah. Yeah. 18 I months. I think it's 22. 20 yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So how did you approach the key hires, Alexis being one of them? So how did you approach that? And when did you know, like, I need a privacy leader in the business? 
Well, you know what's funny? My first my first hire was legal operations, which I will um, talk to the moon and back to anybody who listens that a legal ops hire really early on is key. It can't be something that comes in after the fact. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of time in building. I really find a great legal ops person can roll up their sleeves and do a little bit of everything that the company needs when they're in building mode. Um, the first attorney hire I had was just for a commercial counsel. We're an enterprise SaaS company. I was really looking for you know, somebody to help with that volume of contracts who really wanted to roll up their sleeves. I got infinitely lucky that somehow Alexis, with all of her experience, her deep knowledge of privacy, you know, former data protection officer at SendGrid, helped take them public, get acquired by Twilio. I'm going to brag for Alexis (laughs) a little bit. She accidentally ended up in the pool of commercial attorneys and saw her resume. And I immediately pulled it out thinking, you know what, we're a data pipeline company. The next number one senior skill we really need is a, is a data privacy expert. And Alexis literally fell in our laps and I could not be more pleased. I still remember one of the calls when I was trying to convince you to join Alexis. I was standing outside a Safeway parking lot at my brother's <laughs> house. And I was like, wait a minute, this, this woman's calling. I have to talk to her. And I remember like taking laps around that Safeway parking lot, chatting with you and, um, feeling that special moment, like, I think she's going to come. So how did you know? That's a great story, (laughs) Megan. Like, there's something really cool when you can sense that it's the right fit. And so Alexis, for you, like, what was that? What was that moment when you sensed, okay, like, this is the next potential move? Sure, sure. So uh, I guess I'll give you kind of my background and where I was, why I was looking and why I knew that uh, it in all transparency, it was Megan. Um, but so I, you know, I was in at a law firm, I was a litigator, I did complex commercial litigation and white collar crime, uh, you know, working the typical law firm schedule of 90 hours a week, you know, crazy billables. Uh, I actually quit without a job. Um, and was lucky enough that I that SendGrid hired me. Um, it, you know, I, I guess I, I tell that part in particular because I think that there's this notion as lawyers that there's all these shoulds you should do and shouldn'ts and that you can't change, that you can't, you know, and for me, it has been that I'm ha- super happy to be in tech, but it was not intentional. Um, and it does, you know, I don't think, I don't like the notion that as lawyers, every decision you make is so permanent. So that's, I guess, the reason I I, I want to tell that part. So I ended up at SendGrid, a team of, uh, there were three of us. We took, we grew SendGrid from, I think I joined around 200 to a little bit over 500 when we were acquired by Twilio, or through IPO, excuse me. And then we did a follow-on offering. We are acquired by Twilio as part of their privacy team. I went over and uh, joined IHS Market, who was then acquired by S&P Global. And then I went to a law firm again and was a partner at Lewis Brisboy in their data privacy and security uh, group. And, uh, you know, for all, for all the same reasons, it's difficult to serve multiple masters. I decided that I wanted to go back in-house and so was looking. Uh, and I have never been somebody who lets the job description, I guess, define what I'm looking for. So I thought Five Trans seemed like a very interesting place. I actually have known several people in, you know, the tech world becomes kind of uh, not insular, but you, you know, it's a certain amount of people. And so there were, you know, several people that I knew that were at Five Trans, not in legal, obviously, but, uh, and so I thought I applied for a job uh, because it seemed interesting. And then 
Megan reached out and, you know, through the conversations I had with her, what they were looking for, what, um, you know, what she, what her vision was, was why I decided to come to Biotran. And all right. So good background. You joined now let's, let's get into it a little bit. So I want to ask like a, maybe a more intriguing question. So, um, when you go in house, both of you have done this, like when you either first went in house, sort of what struck you as what sucks the most about being in house? Cause we could talk forever about all the benefits of leaving a law firm and I don't have to bill hours anymore, but what sucks about being in house? Cause there's some really, really hard moments for sure. Maybe Alexis, you start. <laughs> sure. Um, something that has been a, uh, a, a big learning curve for me. And I think that Megan has been a wonderful leader in this is there's a couple things. I think all the building and I am not a, an operational person. So, you know, hiring legal ops, but all the kind of like admin things you have to do. And then, uh, the buy-in that you sometimes need to get from the org for decisions, for big movements, for changes. Um, you know, you basically go from being an advisor uh, and the, as law firms say, you know, like the moneymaker to being, you know, seen as at best a partner, uh, but at worst, you know, a cost center. And so kind of reframing the value of legal, the education, the uh, kind of buy-in work that you have to do to get uh, to get things done in-house, I would say, are the, the hardest parts for me personally. What about you, Megan? Team. So, is what you're saying is like you're not you're not as popular with your colleagues. Is that what it is? <laughs> They're not as happy yeah. to see you. I'm not as popular. I can't say that I care, but yeah. a certain amount of me does have to care to get yeah. you know some things done. <laughs> you it, know, it's it, funny like, you say that. Like, yeah. I, it was it's funny you say that because I remember starting at Five Chan my first month, only attorney, first attorney they've ever had in house. I'm on the executive team. I'm like, okay, guys, I just want to tell you a little bit about legal, and I have this whole presentation set out. And the end of the slide is all these photos about vegetables, you know, just like vegetable stock photos. Because I was trying to set the message early on that like, I'm here to help you eat your vegetables. Please don't, you know, like be surprised when you're going to get some like, you know, broccoli on your plate and all, you know, all, all of the analogies. Yet, you know, fast forward one or two years, the business always gets surprised. Like, what's this kale doing over here? I don't want to do this shit. <laughs> When a That's company a starts <laughs> having worked at small companies and big ones, like maybe you guys have experienced this differently. So I'm interested in, in what you think, but at, at startups, when the lawyers show up, um, whether it's outside counsel or they start hiring um, inside uh, 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 in-house counsel, uh, the com companies change when the lawyers show up. Like that's the truth. Um, I don't think it's always welcome. Have you guys, how have you guys experienced that process, which is particularly sales business people being a little bit hesitant to engage because they know that you're the risk police. Look at the level of Megan. Okay, well, you what's can't, that the, dynamic? The like? listeners can't see how hard Megan is nodding at that. <laughs> I can't confirm or deny Andy. <laughs> It is tough. There's no way about it. And, you know, I think for folks who are in-house or going in-house, there's different levels of adjustments and pushbacks you hit depending on the stage of company. The sweet spot where I've always worked at, whether in private practice or in-house, has been these hyper-growth companies from 
300 to 3000 that are experiencing way too much growth in a short period of time, it's easy to look at legal and say, well, this is why this growth is really painful is because all these processes and requirements and, and honestly, it's sometimes the first time some people in the company are hearing no, right? You get from zero to a hundred and the goal is go, go, go growth at all costs. We just have to survive the 100 to 700,000, whatever it is. It's, Hey, it's not go, go, go. It's smart growth. What does smart growth look like for the long term? We want to make this an enduring business. I have found it very hard for some executives to hear from legal and to include legal and to recognize them as, Hey, you actually have our best interests in mind. I know it feels kind of like icky at the time that you're giving me some paperwork to do. Now that's why when you first come in house, like those big wins early on can go a really long way to showing that you're in their corner. You know, I think even just like in the practical realm, implementing a whole new system that you're asking an entire sales team to do, you know, we use the contracts management system. And we said, I said, day one, look, this is enterprise SaaS business. If we don't have a CLM solution, I'm going to be downloading and uploading documents on email till the cows come home. First thing we have to do is implement something met with a lot of pushback from leadership, but like, as soon as that's implemented, the sales team themselves see, wait a minute, this makes my life so much easier. I love this. And so it's about getting those, those big wins early on to show that you are making these incremental improvements. Does that presume that every company like wants to be a 10 year, hundred year business? Because, you know, my experience when I was, especially early in my career, when I was at a law firm, is, you know, our clients weren't actually the tech companies, it was the VC firms, and the VC firms would come in and make a big investment. And then they say, go in there and protect my investment. And we'd be the first lawyers to show up in the business, right? And when we show up in the business, my goal wasn't to turn that company into a 100 year company, it was whatever the VC firm wanted, which most of the time is turn this, that's I'm going to make a number up, but turn this $50 million that we just dropped into this thing into $200 million in three years or two years. That's the plan. And so, you know, the way you offer advice when your client is the investor, I think is a little different than when you're on the inside. Interested if you've experienced that tension not from either side of it and how you navigated it. And if you haven't, then I can talk more about it, I guess. I'm curious Alexis's thoughts too here. I've thought a lot about this with the market dynamics going on right now, where we've been in this 10 plus year cycle of super boom for VCs, where the market to get your term sheet in front of a hot company is so tight that what I've seen just representing the VC side of the house is that it's a race to the bottom on who can have the most founder friendly terms, who can have the least amount of red lines, who can rock the boat the least, who can say the least to founders. I think that with the economy now, I'm going to be interested if that's going to swing in the opposite direction. Instead of being the lawyer who comes in and has to not rock the boat to make sure all the VCs continue to get first in line for their allocations, maybe we're going to see a little bit of a swing back, which is VCs say, hey, lawyers, you're actually somebody that can help us here when we want to like point holes in valuations or do rounds that are not these like mega rounds that we used to do. Lawyers can actually be on our side. So maybe we want you to rock the boat a little bit if it means getting our house in order. Yeah, I do think it's going to swing back, by the way. Because, I mean, when I started my career, it, I, I graduated from law school right after the Great Recession. or at, at, In the middle of the Great Recession in 2008. So I 
got to private practice sort of like when it was starting to bounce back, but things were still pretty conservative. And, you know, it, 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 the goal was always on the VC side was invest the least amount of money necessary, right? Or possible, obviously. And then when you get there, turn that thing into something that makes us money, <laughs> right? Like, and we're, we, this is our goal, whatever the number is, right? Um, and so the lawyering was very different. I think it's changed to the point you were making, and and which is, you know, for the last 10 years, there's been so much cash out there um, that startups and founders specifically have been kind of left to their own devices. I think that's changing. Alexis, I don't know. I'm interested if from your perch, you see this in a different way or the same. I, I agree. Uh, I do think, you know, the, the notion for the past several years has been as long as it's making money, you're like, don't fix what's not broken. Um, mm. And I do think that that will change. And I think, you know, it's fundamentally different than what you see when you come in house, because right when you come in house, regardless of how it's been working, you are, you're there to de-risk, you identify problems, you want to fix processes, you want to change the way things operate to, you know, fundamentally improve the core of the company. Um, And I don't know that you ever, if you're not in there, in the weeds, in-house, I don't know that you ever see that. Yeah, that makes sense. My... Uh, Megan, you said something a, a couple. Sorry, sorry, Andy, real, real ahead, quick because go I'm gonna forget it. Um, yeah, like Megan, you said something a couple minutes ago that was super interesting, which is like where your sweet spot is is in sort of like hyper growth c- companies that are in the I think you said 300 to 3,000 sort of size company. Um, and then you earlier you were talking about how like you've landed in these departments and you've helped grow them pretty quickly. How do you make the case for budget to do all of that? Like, how do you say like we've got three people i need 40 um that means i need whatever x amount of dollars like how do you make that case it's so funny you say this pedro because i find myself in a really um awkward niche right now where my specialty is to probably grow really large legal departments really quickly to serve the business however the vast majority of tech companies companies generally do not need this many lawyers like i do not i'm not subscribed to this idea that the more headcount you have the more senior you are or the more lawyers you have the better you're doing for your department this is an anomaly like the vast majority of companies should not have this many lawyers. It was purely a function of um, landing at places that were on truly a hyper growth trajectory, looking out a year from now and saying, what does this company need to succeed? And so for Gusto, that meant highly regulated environment. Um, half my team was compliance operations without a JD who were helping code payroll tax law changes into software, right? Um, that was really specific to that industry and that that company's product at the time. For Fivetran, the growth of us to be 20 plus, you know, legal team, that includes deal desk. We're doing a ton of customer agreements constantly. Um, it includes the specialties that we need to be that 2000 plus person company, which we're on the trajectory to be. Um, the case for budget really has to follow the business. So if the business really truly needs it, make a case for the value that that role brings or that function brings. But I've never been someone who is constantly piling on more headcount just for the sake of headcount. In fact, the older I get, the more I see that like, there's actually like the kind of more senior I get in this, there's a lot of great reasons to give away headcount and give away functions when the company has graduated past them. We're, we're touching on the contours of this, but I think like, What's really apparent here is that the GC job, the in-house legal job, big company, small, there's there's an element of sales in it. Mm. 
And I think like people don't internal, like internal sales. And that, that means flexing, you know, either what your group can do and, and positioning it as not just value add revenue add as, as, and not cost center, like the optics of that cannot be understated. So like whether you're growing a team, you know, it's really big or whether you're, um, in, in a much more, as you noted, Megan, like my company is growing, you know, more of the kind of typical variety. Like we have a small team, we're growing it slowly because we've had to position that we have a deal desk too. And so what I've done is tried to position the hires that are needed to support specific business goals and, and to tag Alexis here, privacy is a core competency of our business. And so like it's revenue supporting and these are the ways in which it's revenue supporting. And these are the ways in which when we go to sell that enterprise, we go to raise that money, we go to have liquidity, like spotlight will be in this area. And so I think you have to be really, really thoughtful. And there's almost a sales element. And Pedro, I remember from being in a big company, it's there too. The second you join, like it's, you can't just be a cost center. You can't just be like, this is the risk surface area I'm covering. Like that, that lands like with one person, but it doesn't land with enough people. Yeah, I, I would mean, certainly say privacy can be that for uh, lots of reasons, right? You, it's becoming so important for customers. It's such a, a leverage point, um, and it's like privacy, security are the fundamentals of I would say every at least every customer deal that we're doing. So, but but, but I, I don't know that it's true that there's an organic stage at which even like well, a lot of most companies are data driven these days, but like even the most data driven company, I don't think there's like a, okay, you've reached this point. Now you need a chief privacy officer or a senior privacy lawyer. Like, I think it just kind of varies by company and that's where a lot of judgment comes in. I mean, there's definitely the ability to do it too late. And that's clear. People know we're like, you, you, you should have had all this infrastructure and you didn't do it. But I also think there's a possibility to do it too early and, 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 and I know that's controversial, but like, I don't think you need a chief privacy officer when you've got a five person company that hasn't, you know, left stealth mode. I just don't think so. Yeah, that actually raises a good point, though. It's like, when is it too early to hire certain functions within legal? Because part of what lawyers do is they become deep experts in something to teach others to make sure you're doing the right thing to navigate with integrity. And at a really fast paced company that is a little bit chaotic, sometimes it can be too early to bring someone in because that's going to be frustration on both sides. If you're trying to tighten the belt, but people are trying to find their pants, like there's like a mismatch right there. <laughs> my, my outside counsel, totally agree with my, that. my outside counsel at Goodwin says to me often over the course of a couple companies we've worked together, like our job is to make the GC you know, look good. And so they, they know kind of when, when to help us out in the background and when to kind of, uh, when we ask for help to step forward and Megan, to your point about legal ops and kind of what you're getting at about when to hire certain roles, the legal ops role that you mentioned before, it was my, it was my first attempted hire. I ended up hiring a lawyer, but, but then I hired the legal ops role, but I intended to hire legal ops first. Uh, that, the person that is going to set the, the the tracks down for the train to run on work with you on doing that makes makes legal it sets the foundation for legal being business supported you know business forward whether that's deal desk stuff or privacy operations or like 
just the CLM contract stuff and everything. Like, so it, it, it all, I really just sort of supporting your points there, but, but, um, I agree with that tremendously. What is it? What, what, what is, so tell me about this legal ops. I, what does the legal ops person do early stages of company? Like what is, what are they doing? Hmm. I, I mean, Alexis, you chime in here too, because she works very closely with our legal ops team, who is now a team of two. And um, I think really depends on the size, scale, type of company. If you're at a privacy company, maybe they're doing privacy ops. If, you know, for us, enterprise SaaS company, my number one priority was contract management, contract lifecycle management system. We have to make this process for sales easier. Um the tough thing is that legal ops can change over time, right? You, you like you may have a need for one year and one thing that is building forward. And the next year, the company has graduated or the team has graduated and legal ops needs to shift its focus into something else entirely. And I think a really, really great legal ops functions have that malleability, that growth mindset, that ability to shift in priorities and be super nimble because that's where the true value of it is. Alexis, how do you work with legal ops though? Yeah, I mean, I think depending on what the legal ops, their also their you know their interest, what the the company's interests are, and um, they can also be really valuable in uh, knowing company processes, knowing where legal can plug in, kind of raising the flag for lawyers to even get your foot in the door. So I have found it extremely valuable for with our legal ops team you know, getting into product development, the product life cycle, you know, knowing where privacy can plug in, in that they, you know, are working operationally with their, you know, people across the company all the time. And so being able to kind of give them that dual role of raising the legal flag, and then also, uh, you know, giving us our kind of a, a foot in the door has been really Does helpful. Does your legal ops team help in product in like sort of certain ways? Yeah, so they're helping with, um, you know, getting us involved in the product development lifecycle, knowing where we can plug in to help the business with, you know, we want to be involved in the product lifecycle, be helping the business build their products in a thoughtful way. But also, you know, as Megan and you guys have all said, we don't want to be a heavy hand. We don't want to slow it down. We don't want to be, um, you know, the reason that things aren't moving forward. Uh, we will, you know, we want to have a realistic risk perspective adjusted to what the business wants needs I love that. you know what the economy is asking for and so the legal ops has been really helpful in that as far as where they see it to be valuable where you know how the product life cycles are working who to talk to uh where we I love that in. I've never I've never heard that before of of legal ops you know being into the product side of the house at all like that's a really really good idea and so Pedro to answer your earlier question and and I, like I think legal ops is basically like the next iteration of paralegal, you know, where, where it's uh, somebody that's really skilled, but it's more tech focused for me. Like it's more like, let me get the systems going. Let me, let me, uh, they help us with kind of the systems, the contract system, privacy software, if we have it, billing software if we have it or just handling billing in general like legal billing and all that stuff and what we tend to do and, and, and in our case um nicole who, who's our legal ops person runs the deal desk as well and and all of these things that we're doing 
at least and I'd like to hear from from you know Alexis and Megan on this too like one of my big drivers is to get metrics like we need to look like the other business units if I don't have any metrics to show I can't show growth I can't show what we're doing I can't have any data to support what we're doing it's this really terrible cycle of like what did you do you know <laughs> and so I, you know it's like a balance of the stuff that's really highly visible, like, you know, there's certain things that just are, but like the metrics are really, really important. What are you measuring? Uh, what are you guys measuring? I'm really curious about this because yeah. I'll tell you what, oh my God, it's a good topic. Stick with me here. Stick with me It's a good topic. Stick with me on what are you measuring? Because I worked at a corporation that I shall not name. And at one point, the legal department thought it was a good idea to think about measuring people's time. And when I tell you I led the revolt, I led a revolt so powerful against that notion that it was incredible. But with that being said, you didn't want to go back to the billable hour. No, <laughs> it, that's uh, Pedro. I'm like, I'm like envisioning the Braveheart oh, yeah. scene where he's like, freedom. Yeah, like no that's way, like, dude. No, I don't want you measuring my shit. Like, like, well, how I'm doing things, right? That's what I'm running from, right? So that's that's number one. The second thing is like, and, and, and I'm not picking on Salesforce on this one, but like Salesforce uses Salesforce, right? With like the, the CRM product in our legal department, in the legal department. And it was a great tool for tracking workflows and inquiries and particularly on the business side, like tracking deal, legal work. Um, and, you know, the system would output all of this good measurable data about, you know, you worked on 50 deals this month and you answered 500 questions. But even that can be super misleading, by the way, because Alexis worked on 50 deals this month and handled 150 inquiries. Andy worked on two deals this month and handled no inquiries. Andy's working on McDonald's and uh, I don't know, pick another gigantic corporation. I don't know. You pick it. Apple. Okay. And Alexis is picking up all of the you know deals under $10,000. You tell me what the, and I, you know what 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 the metrics are saying there and how to interpret them because they're not objectively uh, interesting. So you got to apply context to the metric. I think. Anyway, that's me. Big time. I don't want anybody measuring my time. That's all I'm saying. That's <laughs> you know, I, from time to time, I hear GCs who recommend, "Oh, do a time exercise with your Hell team. No. Spend one or two weeks and make everybody log their time for two weeks, so you can really know exactly <laughs> what everyone's working on." That just flags to me that there is a lack of complete trust. Oh, totally, exactly. You trust the people that you hire to figure out their time. Totally. If they need help, time management. You sit down and like workshop it, but you don't ask people to log their time for two weeks. That's not why if we you want a surefire way. Totally. A, oh, a surefire like, way to get your team yeah. to start looking for other jobs that is it <laughs> yeah i mean it was a revolt Completely. and it's exactly what you just described again i was like hey let's just see i'm like you're, i'll tell you you're, i'm not gonna log a lot of time during those two weeks because i'm even working on my fucking resume like no way man you're also, nuts. We, like, uh, uh, no way also who has time for that like all, all like <laughs> this is like the the epitome of of time sh- shittily spent doing that so many times i spend the day you know responding to slack and email and i'll be like what did i do today yeah. right like yeah. it was a shit show it was a flurry i don't know what yeah. i did today but i know i did a lot yeah. i know i didn't eat lunch yeah. but, but but that's the job I, I know i couldn't tell you but like that's yeah. the job you're being an influencer yeah. around the business right like that's the job like you're the voice of reason 
the calm person in the room. I'm not, you know, my demeanor might not be calm, but I think intellectually I tend to be calm, right? Like in my feedback. Um, and so like you're the calm sort of like uh, strategic thinker in every conversation and you're in tons of them. That is the work product a lot of the time, right? So uh, like, even though it feels yeah. like you didn't do anything, Alexis, you probably did a lot of really important shit that day. She, um, she did. She did. And I'm interested in talking about how we quantify those things. Cause, cause you're exactly. right. Like, you're, you're right. Like the, the objective metrics that are available through a contract system are helpful, but it's not the only They're way helpful. to, it's helpful, but it's not the only way. And, and if using Salesforce exactly. is just one angle. So context is important but also just making sure that we as the as the leader of the department tee up what our people are doing with the proper context of of what they're doing so if somebody is doing smb deals then volume might matter and timeline might matter if somebody's doing huge deals we're highlighting and telling stories like this deal with apple was a monster and it took forever and it was a lot of back and forth and th- this is why this person did you know, a really good job on it. They worked with this team, you know, over this time horizon. So it's a lot of work, but I think you do have to show it and you do have to find the right moments to to talk about that, you know, with the whole company truly so that everybody understands that legal, it's a, it's a culture building experience. Do you guys see the same momentum in, in particularly commercial legal teams? Uh, let me give you the trajectory of my time at Oracle, uh, in, in commercial legal at Oracle, a company that I loved working for and still have a lot of friends at. I joined the company as a sort of junior commercial lawyer, mid-level, whatever. Um, took on tons of deals, okay? Like you just take on a, this massive portfolio of deals and you're supporting a bunch of client relationships. I don't know. I don't remember the number, but it was a lot. As I started to prove myself good at my job over time, I actually worked on less things over time. They just got a lot harder, which is what I was sort of trying to de- like demonstrate before. By the time I left Oracle, I was working on two or three deals at a time, but they were all massive. Is that sort of how you guys see? Did I freeze? Like he's, frozen. Or- he's frozen in Portugal. <laughs> Am I frozen? Am I frozen? I was thinking he was frozen. Did I freeze? You just said you you just said uh, you became the general counsel of Oracle. When I became the general counsel, the the shadow general counsel at Oracle. No, the general counsel at Oracle is Dorian Daly, and she is a great GC, and I'm lucky to have worked. Yeah, I don't know where I dropped. I'm sorry, Portugal internet is not being very reliable. <laughs> if only we could all be Portugal internet. Portugal I think internet. that's a, a great problem to have. Portugal internet. <laughs> Me- Megan, <laughs> to your, to your, Megan, how do you think about yeah. th- this? Because like I think uh, of the people on this call, we're doing the most kind of teeing up of what our team is doing. <laughs> well, like, maybe that's not true, but but maybe we're thinking about it across multiple oh. vectors. Maybe. <laughs> It, it's kind of hard because you have to know your company's love language. Wait, what? Um, and so, <laughs> tell me more about that. You have to be familiar with the concept of I love know, language. This is very what, what, true. Like, very, very true. What, are, what is it? I learned this coming to Five Trans. It's a totally different love language than anywhere else. I've, I've never heard yeah. this phrase data. Okay, in corporatese. Data. Data is the love um, language, which isn't a surprise because we're a data pipeline company. We help companies move their data from one place to another. We live and breathe data. We look our dashboard, uh, the shit out of everything. Every executive has multiple dashboards and an analytics person supporting them. And so 
when you come in to build a legal function from scratch in an environment like this, I can't upend the whole system and say, no, 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 trust me. I have a lot of experience. I will give you the, you know, background on all of this. And it's really, it's a gray zone. And here's how we should think about it. Like there's some amount of that that has to be done to educate um, the role of legal and how we are advisors. And there are gray zones and not everything is a clear answer. But you got to fall in line with the love language of the company, which for us is data. And, you know, to your metrics point, Andy and Pedro, like we are on a metrics blast right now as a legal team. We spent the first year building and this second year is all about how do we measure what we're doing? Time to contract completion, deal value versus number of touch points, number of times went back and forth on negotiations. We're measuring things, even like number of equity emails answered to our equity alias account, because you can get that from your Google groups, like scanning of your email inbox. Um, there's so much more to measure. The problem is we, we as lawyers aren't often great at telling stories with data. We either get so into the weeds and the details with, which is how we're, we're wired to operate, but this doesn't work with this. And this doesn't tell the full picture. I'm comfortable with data that gives us directional 80% especially for legal teams where data in general is so hard to get. Directional data shouldn't be a bad word or something that we avoid because it's not 100% correct. Directional data is at least a starting point for us to work with. I, 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 I don't know. Alexis, I would love to hear your take on coming to 5Tran. Uh, like if, you, uh, if that resonates with you or if you think there's a couple other love uh, uh, <laughs> No, uh, I would absolutely say that it does. And it was a, it was a, a hard transition for me, to be honest. I couldn't, uh, you know, I had a hard time being like, it's, it's that way or that, that, you know, me saying it's that way because I said so was not sufficient. And taking it back several steps, like, here's what our competitors are doing. Here's why it matters. Here's data here, you know, providing all of this information that I've never had to provide elsewhere. Um, and so it, it was a big, it was a big transition for me. Uh, and it has made me a, a better lawyer and a better communicator, but it's still something that I struggle with in our, in uh, our love language, as Megan calls it. But it's something that I think has really be- become incredibly valuable and something that I recognize that can, you know, further bolster you know, what you're doing as a team, your story, your narrative. Uh, And I think the biggest part is finding those places where you can gather that data and thinking about that even to start, right? So, you know, Megan's recognition, like, let's talk about equity. Let's talk about what contracts we're doing. Let's talk about privacy inquiries. Let's talk about, you know, what where uh, product plugins, let's talk about, you know, what subsidiary management we're doing, all of these kind of data points. was the first step, which is not somewhere I had been before. Alexis, while we're on love languages, fun, fun facts for the like um, many, many thousands of hundreds of thousands of listeners out there. <laughs> millions. Um, Alexis and I's love, Alexis and I's, <laughs> the millions. Alexis and I's love language, I think, is the heart emoji on Slack. Very yeah. under underappreciated emoji. Yeah. Uh, nice heart emoji reaction to a comment in Slack can go. It feels a long good. Way. Yeah. It does feel good. Pedro, what what is, is there a love la- yeah. is there a love language at Meta? No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He doesn't want to. I don't, I don't want to answer that. I don't know the answer to that. 
I, I think we definitely have like some strong emoji uh, energy. I mean, look, we like we run a social media company, so we <laughs> emoji energy. We got a lot of emoji <laughs> energy. Um, um, uh, but I don't know that we have. I look, Meta's a data-driven company. I think inside the policy group, you know, I think I I worry sometimes about, and I like how you framed it, and I, and I don't remember exact your exact verbiage, but like eighty percent. Well, how did you say it, Megan? You said if data can get us eighty percent of what directional something like that. How do you say that? Directional yeah. data. Yeah, directional yeah, data. Directional data is underappreciated. Yeah, and, and so I like <laughs> the idea of using data as a steer, right? Yeah. I don't think data is final knowledge, and I don't think data on its own can be determinative about process. I think data can be determinative about a lot of things. Okay, I take a blood test; it says I'm missing a thing. That's determinative. That's not, but like. For example, if you wanted to use data to always like uh, predict my mood, the word predict is in there because you, it's always an estimation, right? We know that. We know that with 100% certainty, the data is not necessarily going to be right. And so I think the same applies for, for processes. I think the same applies for people. Like it's really for people interactions and activities. Like I think data is good steer and it's important. But I think like analog signal, offline signal, human judgment signal to sort of supplement and complement that data is really important uh, to make sure that you're not misreading what's actually happened. Like you, you mentioned touch points. Some people are just to stick with love language, like more touchy feely. They send more emails. They send more slacks. They send more emojis. They send more notes. They ask more questions. Other people just don't operate that way. That is a style issue that doesn't necessarily go to effectiveness. It just goes to like the cadence of your work, right? And like, I have a certain work style. It's kinetic. Like when I'm in a room, you know it. Other people have a much less kinetic work style and are 50 times more effective than me at certain things because of their approach, right? And so, like, I think data's important. I worry that we overcommit, not saying you guys do. When I say we, I mean the world is overcommitted to saying data demonstrates all. And I work for a company that really does rely on data for a lot of its business. And data is supremely valuable uh, asset for a lot of companies and organizations. But I don't think it's always, you know, it's not the end all. It's not priory knowledge. You don't want to be boxed. You don't want to be boxed <laughs> in by your data, by what the data says. This is about a you. big issue. A shit. <laughs> this is yeah. this is a big issue with VC backed companies, like yeah. uh, in the boardroom in particular, and especially when you have board members, which is most of the time they want to be helpful. They've invested in the business. They're trying to help you. Um, and I think sometimes there's a there's a certainly at certain stages of business, there's a reliance on benchmarks, which is which is fine directionally to, to, to your language, Megan, but not fine if it's just just hammered and, and, and overdone and like inappropriate for where the business is and, in a, and not taking into account some of the things you mentioned, Pedro, culture of business, the market around you, the dynamics, what's happening in the world. Like you just can't, you can't do all that stuff in a vacuum. So I think we are constantly yeah. trying to find the right balance. Yeah. Let me give a hypo for this because I think for the listeners, like hopefully the, this hypo like drives the point home. Let, you know, employee surveys are rampant. They're always like click thingies you get an email and you go in and you do your your satisfaction survey right and you get all these questions and a lot of companies do this they ramp it all over the place including mine we do like an employee survey every quarter or something like that let's say your organization your legal department is 10 people 
and you do an employee satisfaction survey. And one of the questions is, hey, do you, you know, do you feel um, uh, like you work in an inclusive place or whatever? Something along those lines. Do you feel like you're part of the team and, and it's inclusive? And nine out of 10 people reply yes. And one person replies no. Is that enough signal to say, yeah, we're doing pretty good? Like, do you have enough data there to say you're doing pretty good? I mean, you, nine out of 10 people love it there and think that they feel included. You guys tell me, does it, does it does that solve the issue and say we're doing really great in this category, move on? Like, is, as leaders, is that enough? Here's my answer. It depends. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it, legal answer. Legal yeah. answer. It really does depend because let's look at the demographic of the department yeah. and paint it this way. There's 10 people in the department. Nine are white and one is black. The one black employee is the one saying they don't feel included. You got a big problem in your legal department. Yeah, huge. Okay, you got a huge problem in your legal department. And by the way, like that's just a like an extreme example. It doesn't have to play out that cleanly. It's in, in, in quotes, um, but like. That's an example of data that looks really positive at first glance that could be horrific and requires more sort of non-data driven probing, but requires the other type of investigation. Right. So anyway. Well, this is it's interesting, Pedro, like combining this hypo with what you mentioned a little bit earlier, Andy, around, you know, VC's expectations and benchmarkings. In a lot of ways, legal is the last frontier mm. of the whole company that is the least data driven. Mm -hmm. sure. I would argue that even the HR departments are more data-driven because they've had a deeper history of people analytics and people software that can spit out data, and they have to show reports on recruiting and diversity. And so because legal is the least data-driven, because it's so hard to quantify what we do and the value of what we do it, we're sort of the last frontier that I I believe is expected to bring the human element to the company, to the boardroom, to the conversations. So more so even than the people team sometimes or the HR team, you need to bring that holistic view that is, okay, but what lives outside the data and how do I help bring the humanistic elements that might be missing from this conversation? I totally yeah. agree with you. And I think like, I totally agree. I think like HR teams, people teams are really good at dealing with conflict, but they're not really, and they're the best organizations for that but they're not always like understanding the culture of the organization in the way that legal has the like sort of like first row front row seat for i couldn't agree with what you said more at all it was, it's exactly right i think anyway right, we gotta Andy, we gotta let you my, all go uh, we gotta, yeah, we, gotta we gotta let before, you guys go but before, before we go before we go yeah. um back to back to love languages what's the love language of our podcast like of this episode, what's the love language? Um, I don't, I don't know. Quality time. Words of affirmation. <laughs> Words of Words affirmation. affirmation. Well, I, I would say quality time. I would say quality time, and especially when we began it, we began it in COVID at a time when we we like wanted to remain connected to our our people, you know, and our and and we've been mm -hmm. meeting new people through this, and it's just like for me, it's about quality time. But actually, I could probably spin. There's five main ones. I could probably spin, you know, this into all five. For me, it's definitely yeah. I mean, quality time's good. I, we have a good time. I think that's yeah. that's a pretty solid one. I didn't think we'd talk about um, love languages today. So thanks for bringing that to the table. I'm gonna well, some some, some final vernacular. some. Some final words of affirmation. <laughs> Alexis, Megan, thank you for joining us. You guys rock. Thanks. Uh, it's, it's cool to see all the things that you've accomplished and all the things that are ahead. 
Alice is a proud user of Fivetran and SendGrid. So, uh, you know, nice. keep it going. Yes. Keep it going. And uh, we're, we're really nice. psyched that you that you joined us. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. Thanks, friends. Yeah, thank, thank you, guys. Hey, Joe. And thanks to Alexis, my partner in crime and all things and an amazing leader. Awesome. Big time. Oh, thank you, Megan. <laughs> Look so at the now... words of affirmation. <laughs> yes. Words of yeah, affirmation. Yeah, you guys. I'm, I'm feeling really good. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for spending, uh, you know my thanks love for spending some quality time with us. Yeah.